Welcome to Rhode Island's Church and State Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Jessica. We're a husband and wife podcast. He's a pastor and I'm a state senator. So you've been warned. We're about to talk politics and religion. And anything else that might get us canceled. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us yet again for another episode of Church and State. And today we're going to be talking about Roger Williams and Rhode Island, Rhode Island's indigenous people. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, I don't want to say turmoil around Thanksgiving and Columbus Day. And oh, the controversy. Con- with it. Yeah, yeah, because of, um, you know, uh, indigenous people and, and how they were treated. Right. But um, Roger Williams is a very unique individual, someone definitely people should look up to for mm-hmm. uh, various reasons. And so we're going to talk about. Roger, Roger Williams, Williams yes. and his relationship with indigenous people here in Rhode Island. Yeah, so I I think uh, when Thanksgiving comes around, we're always thinking about the uh, the pilgrims and the Indians, and and the uh, we even were talking to our boys about it uh, just yesterday. You know what happened with those, uh, you know, with the first Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So I thought today we we'd cover the same idea, but really from the perspective of Rhode Island. Um, Thanksgiving was started in, in not in Rhode Island, but uh, it, it's interesting to see the relationship that Roger Williams had with uh, the indigenous people. Now, um, we found this article uh, in the Smithsonian Magazine that um, has an interview uh, by Lynn Garrity with uh, a biographer of Roger Williams named John M. Barry. And uh, today we're going to just kind of provide a summary of that interview because it was really eye-opening. I think many times we hear the narrative over and over again that um, the colonists, you know, wiped out or enslaved or stole the land from the Native Americans, and that certainly is it certainly is true to a large extent. But Roger Williams was an outlier. He really was a different kind of individual. And it seems like the more I read about him, the more I'm fascinated by him, but the more I appreciate how he really was a, uh, in, uh, I don't know if the word is innovator, but he was a, um, he, he did not follow the um, the, the group thing. He right. really he went bucked, against, yeah. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was going to say he, he bucked the norm, like, uh, you know, where, well, we're going to go into it because I don't want to go into okay. it now. Yeah. Let, yeah let's yeah. talk about. All right. Well, let's, um, you know, it really starts when he was, um, after his banishment, uh, he was banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. If you, by the way, if you haven't heard our podcast episode on Roger Williams and things you should know about him, we have a whole episode uh, way back when I'd have to look up the exact number, but, um, hopefully you can Maybe dig it up. Maybe we can find it and like put it in the link. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can look it up. But, um, he, uh, he was banished from Massachusetts Bay for his beliefs that, well, two of them. One, that the state should not have the right to punish a person because of their religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. So if you dissent um, from the Puritan uh, theology and the Puritan way of, of, uh, of approaching God and religion, that should not be something the state steps in and punishes you for. That was number one. Second thing that he was banished for was his belief that the Native Americans had been in, had been treated wrongly, that the colonists had confiscated the land, taken it illegally. And because he was outspoken on that, he would be banished. So I, um, so that kind of just kind of sets the stage for uh, why he's going to end up outside of Massachusetts. But um, uh, eventually he's going to make his way down to, to Providence. And um, well, you know what, even before we talk about his banishment and before he gets down to Providence, the years leading up to 
his banishment, you see his connection with the Native Americans um, really, you know, it, it's an interesting relationship he has with them because he's, yes, he he's an Englishman and he very much is proud of being an Englishman, but he also sees that the Native Americans are also people. They're not subhuman, they're not beasts, but they are also created by God. And that was a unique idea in itself, a pretty novel approach mm -hmm. to interacting with them. But he um, he spent a lot of time trading but very with, biblical, though. Very biblical, right, right, right exactly. Yeah. Um, so I know that uh, not every colonist during this time is going to be as enlightened as Roger Williams, but Roger mm -hmm. Williams was... Pretty, Ahead of his time. I would say so. Yeah. Um, so anyways, he spends a lot of time trading with the Native Americans, learning their language. He writes a book, we've talked about this in the past, called mm -hmm. The Key into the Language of America. But it was more than like a, a dictionary. Um, it was more of a cultural book. And in it, you really get a picture into how the, the Native Americans lived, what their culture was like. Like one thing that I find fascinating is that um, uh, the family units were so tight that if a man was accused of murder and um, and the and this man the accused like ran away his brother could actually be punished in his place mm -hmm. could actually be executed yeah. so it just shows like how how interesting that is whereas Europeans and westerners tend to think more in terms of the individual the native americans thought in in more of a collective yeah. or a, a, a kind of a group tribal right mentality so i guess he had uh, an interest in we'll say anthropology and language because he, sure did. he was uh, very detailed and i think this book is still referred to for mm -hmm. um detailed descriptions of the life and the language yes. of the the natives here yes and he was uh, probably one of the best um translators into Al algonquin the the prominent language at least in this region uh so he was he was considered an expert. And that put him in a prominent place whenever there was a trade deal happening between the colonists and the Native Americans. But also, um, you know, he ended up being the go-to diplomat. If there was a problem, if there was a need to have a translator or, or some sort of a, a big sit-down, a meeting between the, the colonists and the Natives, you would have Roger Williams there to help facilitate that. Really mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Um, Jess, did you read that section on the land rights? You yeah, talk about that was that? my favorite part mm -hmm. because, uh, as you're talking about, he, he was the go-to guy for the translation land rights were, um, important to, to Roger Williams and the colonists of the Massachusetts Bay colony believed that a, the King had all the authority to give them the land. And they also, they believe that because of smallpox and the death of the Native Americans, that they felt like it was a sign from God mm. and that this was meant, this land was meant for them. Almost like an act of judgment, like God yeah. had cleared the land for them. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was interesting. Roger Williams did not buy into that argument at all. He, um, he resisted that. Yeah. And then, um, so one of the things Roger really, really, Williams really believed in was that uh, British common law uh, was so that it didn't recognize illegal la uh, land grabs, right? So he believed that if we were to take the land from the natives, that that was wrong and illegal, and that the only way to legally own the land was to purchase it right. from the Indians, and which made me think of um, uh, how the colonists then mm -hmm. 
went back and located the Native Americans in which yeah. that land belonged to them. Right. And some of it, can you imagine how much time it took? To, yeah, to years locate, or decades. Yeah, exactly. But then they would go back and they would purchase the land. Fairly. Yeah. And sometimes not so. In the so article, it talked true. about how it, sometimes it was. Yeah, they would still even then, you know, kind of lowball the, the Native Americans, not giving them the full, uh, full compensation. Uh, so some land. of them were small amounts, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, it makes you wonder about uh, the purchase of uh, of this land. But it, like to see his convictions that the Native Americans should be treated fairly, should be, um, it, it should be uh, you know given a fair price for the land, mm -hmm. not taken advantage of. He really did see them as equals. Now, yeah. to be clear, he wasn't. Um, a universalist. He, he he didn't believe that all these Native Americans were going to heaven or that they um, uh, that they were right. He he still believed as a Englishman that he was loyal to England and that was you know his first love, but also that Christianity was the right way. Mm -hmm. So he was in a he had strong convictions in what he believed, but he's willing to give allowance and respect uh, and toleration to the uh to the native americans which goes to show you that even though you can be um in the minority that you can influence others mm -hmm. because he obviously influenced the colonists there to locate the natives mm. who own the land to pay them for it so um never be afraid of being a small voice right a squeaky wheel yeah <laughs> if you know you're right uh stay strong in those convictions yeah. so of course fast forward he uh, is banished from he, the the colonies he in 1636 and um, that's when he finds providence and as has famously been said over and over again roger williams purchases the land which is true to his own convictions purchases the land from the native americans and settles in providence now it, it, within a year um, the whole region is going to break out into a war, the Pequot War of um, 1637. Mm -hmm. But what I found interesting here is once again, Roger Williams is invited in to become a mediator. The English realize that their back's up against the wall. They have these two massive tribes, the Narragansetts and the Pequots, and they are both ready to go to war in an alliance against the colonists. But Roger Williams realizes, because he's still loyal to, to England and still considers himself an Englishman, mm -hmm. he realizes if they join forces, it's game over. It's very likely that the Massachusetts Bay Colony will be wiped out. Oh, yeah, yeah. So even though he's been banished, he is still advocating fighting for you know the survival of the community. So he walks into, it's really interesting when you read the article, he walks into the village that has a thousand Indian warriors lined up. They're in the middle of negotiating an alliance, the Narragansetts and the, the Pequots. He's the sole Englishman. He walks in there by himself. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and there are well over a thousand people. We're just counting the warriors, but of course, there's all the support people and the women and children and mm -hmm. everybody else. But he goes in there and he could have been killed, but because he had cultivated such a positive and a relationship with the native americans and and honored them and they they honored him as well they were willing to listen to him and he was able to point out some of the um, uh, some of the contradictions and some of the falsehoods that the pequots were saying and then uh convince the narragansetts not to jump in to this alliance so because of his intervention he was able to 
keep the Narragansetts out of the war as a neutral party, and then Massachusetts ends up fighting the Pequots by themselves. I found that really, really fascinating. It just shows the level of respect that they had for him mm -hmm. because if the narrative that we oftentimes hear is that all of the colonists you know were were hateful and racist and and uh, stealing the land and killing off people uh if that were true roger williams would have been strung up he would have been killed on the spot mm -hmm. but he clearly had had built up and deposited some respect with them and for him to be able to convince an entire tribe to stay out of the war showed that um you know he, he was an honorable a man. man of influence he for really sure. was yeah yeah and honor and then there's the the whole uh, uh aspect of converting the native americans i know this has been a, a big uh question and topic that people have had you know w what was roger williams belief on that he knew that he could convert them if by convert you just meant say a prayer or just get them to you know repeat the saying after me he knew he could just get them baptized but roger williams again because he had strong convictions about what it meant to be a follower of jesus christ to to be a christian he believed that 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 was not true conversion that the conversion had to be a heart matter and a head matter not just a matter of repeating the right phrase or the right words or getting baptized so uh, for him, he um, he he actually uh, discouraged um, evangelization because he wasn't convinced that the Native Americans could understand it. I mean, remember, this is in the 1600s. So in the 1600s, there's already a language gap. There's a cultural gap. These people have no idea, right? What the oh, cross is? Imagine what is yeah? Jewish people, what do you Jesus, Messiah, that anointed, <laughs> yeah. prophecy. I mean, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah. uh, th this is an animist uh, culture. In other words, they they worship spirits. They worship nature in part. They don't have a sense of monotheism, right? Like a one uh, one right. God. So there's, let alone the Trinity, imagine trying to explain that to them, uh, one God and three persons. Right. So he really recognized that there were some language gaps, some language barriers that would prevent them from really understanding not just Christianity, but Jesus, the atonement and sacrifice. So he, he just kind of stepped away from that and he resisted it. Now I had heard, and since you know better than I do, I'm going to defer to you here on this as a, as the history buff, um, I had read that he didn't try to convert them and that he felt that if they were to find Christ, that God would reveal himself to them Ooh. and that's how they would be converted. I think there was probably some of that. I mean, he was what we would call today a missiologist. He was a, a missionary or at least someone who studied the idea of becoming a missionary. So he... Um, he, he he definitely recognized there were way too many obstacles and he, maybe God would reveal himself to them. I'm sure he would leave room for that. He, he understood God is big and sovereign and God will elect and choose some to be saved. He had no doubt of that. I'm sure he was deeply entrenched in his, in his Calvinism. But ultimately he said, every Native American should be free to worship as they choose, as they want. Mm -hmm. There should not be a forced conversion. They could be invited, but even then, and remember, he's like the expert uh, linguist when it comes to Algonquin, and he was not confident that he could explain salvation to them. So he was, you know, he dismissed, uh, you know, other colonists who thought that they could 
you know, do better than him. Yeah. And he was very trained in theology. We've talked about talked about how he was a Bible teacher in, in some of the churches. Mm -hmm. So very, very well respected theologian, wrote a lot, very, very intelligent person. But again, I would say very enlightened too, in some ways, right? In some ways he seems very <laughs> open and so tolerant, but his views on religion were so narrow that in his view, you could not be sure if anyone was saved. Like it, I think we mentioned this in the previous podcast, he would not pray with anyone because to him, prayer was worship and you're only supposed to worship one God. And if I'm praying with you and I don't know if you're really saved, you're praying to God, but it might not be my God. Mm -hmm. So in his view, so at that one was, time he was, that was like, too close to idolatry. Yeah. So one time he's like praying with his wife and only that was the only part. And then at some point he was just all alone. Yeah. Yeah. He was like the church. He would one. only pray with his wife because, you know, she, uh, at least he could see the fruit in her life and the consistency and seemed to say, you know, all right, she really does love Jesus. But my own pastor, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so that was, again, pretty wild. Um, and then do you want to talk about the hostilities towards the end of his end of his life when King Philip's war breaks out? Yeah. So unfortunately, at that point, he was unsuccessful. That was 1676. He was unsuccessful in trying to avert a war between the English and the Indians. And uh, Roger Williams and the Massasoit, which... Uh, Massasoit. He was the uh, the chief of the Wampanoags. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a positive relationship, but his uh, uh, son, the son of the uh, chief, Medicom, uh, ended his father's alliance with the colonists and then because the colonists were continuing to violate their terms of right. the alliance. So, right, right. Um, yeah, to be clear, Medicom was the son. Right. Um, Massasoit had died, um, but then uh, Medicom takes over and he's the one that um, that takes over as uh, as the leader of the Wampanoags. Now, if you are a, you know, if you live in East Providence or Barrington, or Riverside, you know, that area, then you know, you, you always hear in Massasoit, Medicom, Wampanoag. Wampanoag yeah, yeah, Wampanoag Trail. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, so, yeah. So it started when uh, Indians were supposed to surrender their guns. Uh-oh. Beware. Let me get that. And, and maybe I should say Native Americans. It started when the Native Americans were supposed to surrender their guns as yeah. part of an agreement, but they refused. Now, and, would you? There was a peace agreement. They were supposed to, you know, just give up their arms. And uh, I would say never give up your arms. Never. And you know what? It sounds like they would have been uh, pro-Second Amendment. Yeah. It sounds like they were definitely <laughs> If I had to ask them, I said, you know, do you think uh, Second Amendment is important? Well, they wouldn't give up their firearms. Good for them. And good for them. Um, and um, many were killed. And, of course, there were retaliations. But... Mm -hmm. Um, so he suffered from it. Unfortunately, his house that was located in Providence was destroyed right. and it left him impoverished for many, many years for the, for the last years of his life, really. Right. And, um, I remember when I was in, mm -hmm. um, in, uh, uh, in college, taking some classes on Rhode Island history, learning just how devastating the King Philip's war was, you know, we oftentimes think of, you know, one of the most devastating wars in American history, uh, civil war, maybe world war two. Those are pretty, pretty heavy wars. Lots of people died. But when you look at the, the scale of warfare from King Philip's war, it was without a doubt, the bloodiest war in American wow. history. Now, 
of course, it's pre-American history, colonial history, mm-hmm. but it is the bloodiest war. When you, if you just scale it up, right, and just look at the percentages rather than the the, the final death count or mm-hmm. how many people died, it was um, it was horrendous. You mentioned that Providence was burned down. Well, in Providence was Roger Williams, mm-hmm. his own home yeah. was burned down. Uh, you saw ten percent of the militia killed. 10% of all of the armed forces were killed wow. in that war. Yeah. They had 12 towns destroyed. Now, 12 seems like, is that a big number? Well, that's 12 out of like 110 towns. So that's 10% of, Amer- imagine if there was today's world, right? Uh, 10% of America's cities and towns wiped right. out. Yeah. And then half of them, half of the towns were actually attacked. So again, think of half of America being under attack. Mm-hmm. We've never seen that scale of warfare. It was the kind of war where every family was traumatized for years because it went on for several years, traumatized by this war um, with peripheral cities like Providence just being leveled and, and burned down and having to be rebuilt. Um, but what I found fascinating about the King Philip's War is how Roger Williams, even there, tried to play a role. Like he tried to broker peace between the colonists and the Native Americans. Ultimately, he failed. Um, but even, and then even when he failed in Providence, his his hometown, right, his, his, his legacy is burned and his home is burned. Even then, Roger Williams does not give in to um, racism. Bitterness. Or bitterness, uh, hatred. Even then, he's still considered the natives, his friends, mm-hmm. and um, uh, saw the war, you know, not as like a, a clash between races or religions even. He just saw it as a giant mistake. The whole thing should have been avoided. And he, he kind of had, even though he was very much in the middle of it and very much a victim of it, he was able to step back and just say, this was a disaster. This is not the way it had to go. And he just saw a lot of missteps that happened along the way. I think we can learn a lot from Roger Williams. Um I think we can learn to to not be afraid to stand in your conviction, mm. uh, to be bold in that. Mm-hmm. Um, always stand for what's just and yeah. what's right, and forgive. And forgive. I mean, I'm thankful for someone like Roger Williams, who was a man ahead of his time, and um, um, recognized that Native Americans were fully people. Then they should be respected. Their land. And land rights mm-hmm. should have been respected. Yeah. So um, I really appreciate the uh, this interview and this article. And I encourage you to check it out if you want to read it for yourself. It's in the Smithsonian Magazine. Just look up uh, Roger Williams uh, and it should pop up. And if you're interested in reading more about Roger Williams, I'd recommend the Roger Williams biography by Edwin Gostad, where he gets into some of the uh, some of uh, the history of Williams, not just in Massachusetts Bay, but with the Indians, and then of course in in Providence. Um, all right, anything else we want to say? No, just uh, stay tuned and share this podcast with someone who should know a little bit more about Rhode Island's great and rich history. Thanks to Roger Williams. Roger Williams, um, Rhode Island's first and greatest founding father. Today's closing quote comes from Roger Williams. He said. Boast not, proud English, of thy birth and blood. Thy brother Indian is by birth as good. Of one blood, God made him and thee and all.
Thanks again for listening. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, help us by subscribing and sharing these episodes. And for more content, check out churchandstateri.com. 